today. Who or what do you rely on most to navigate daily life? Who or what do you put your hope in for the future? For some, Google will be the go-to authority in lots of situations. After Googling, I found that nearly 50,000 people a month ask Google, how do I get home? Over 8,000 ask the more philosophical, why are we here? And worryingly, over 90,000 ask, am I pregnant? <laughs> now, Google can do a pretty good job of answering lots of questions. But we're probably less confident in Google as an authority on the bigger questions of life. What is the future of this world? Why is our world in such a mess? How can I be sure that Jesus is worth following when it's hard? How do I decide who to listen to when I have a big life decision to make? At the time of Daniel, the Israelites in exile would have been asking some big questions. Where is God in this? What is there to look forward to? Why is it worth following God anyway? It seemed as though God had given up on them and that the Babylonians were the ones in charge. The Israelites were far away from home under enemy rule. Psalm 137 describes how they felt. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? The Babylonians would have looked as though they had all the authority. The Israelites needed to know that their God was the authority to rely on and that staying faithful to him in, in enemy territory was worth it. Also, we know from the end of Daniel chapter 1 that Daniel wasn't actually written down until after the exiles had returned. Those returnees needed to see that they still weren't really home. Despite being back in the geographical location of Israel, they needed to look forward to the kingdom that Christ would bring rather than putting their hope in the land around them. Our passage today addresses both their questions and ours. Firstly, by showing what we can't ultimately hope in or rely on, and secondly, by showing who we can rely on and hope in. So looking at verses 1 to 13, we see the insufficiency of human wisdom. So we need to step back over two and a half thousand years, which is the time just before Google. And we meet a king who was stuck and needed answers. From verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. For most of us, a bad dream is simply a bad dream. But Nebuchadnezzar knew that his dream was confusing enough and important enough that he needed an explanation. For the Babylonians, wise men were the ones you would call in situations like this. And as the king, Nebuchadnezzar had a whole host of them magicians, enchanters, sorcerers and astrologers, these guys would be the, the Oxford and Cambridge of Babylonian wisdom. And they're quick to want to help. Verse 4, 
tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. Nebuchadnezzar isn't keen on that idea though. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut to pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. Nebuchadnezzar is a king who expects to get what he wants and there are serious consequences for those who don't give it to him. There was a problem though. The wise men weren't as wise as their title suggests. Again they say, let the king tell his servants their dream and we will interpret it. Nebuchadnezzar sensibly suspects that if he tells them the dream, they'll just make up an explanation. But no matter how many threats, Nebuchadnezzar can't get his wise men to be as wise as he wants them to be. The astrologers spot the issue in verses 10 and 11. There is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. The astrologers are wise enough to know that their wisdom was limited. They knew they needed insight that they couldn't get from the world around them. This is important because as well as two cities, there are two worlds presented to us in the book of Daniel. There's the here and now world that we can see and touch. This is the world in which Nebuchadnezzar's men could have had some insight. But the book also shows us a behind the scenes world, a spiritual realm that is always there and always at work in the world around us. We just can't see it. And so we can't understand it unless it's revealed to us. For the Babylonians, a god proved itself if it was able to reveal things. But here we see that the wisest men of Babylon don't have access to any god who can help them. And the result for them is deadly. Verse 12, the king ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. If Nebuchadnezzar doesn't have the power to get the wisdom he's looking for, he'll flex the power he does have by killing. This whole section shows just how weak human wisdom is. By only observing the here and now world around us, the cleverest people can only guess, hope for the best, or despair when it comes to answering the biggest questions of life. To answer those questions, we need to hear from the only one who has authority over both worlds, the here and now world we can see and the behind the scenes spiritual world that we can't. Daniel turns to him in the next part of the drama. So Daniel turns to the God who reveals in verses 14 to 30. Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, delivers the bad news. The wise men of Babylon are all to be put to death. What do you think your first reaction would be if you were one of those wise men? I think panic would be up there for most of us. But Daniel reacts very differently to how we would. Firstly, in verse 14, he speaks to Arioch wisely and tactfully 
rather than getting angry or defensive. He then takes the bold step of asking the king for time so that he can interpret the dream. Daniel also doesn't just try to deal with this on his own. He explains the situation to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, and crucially, he asks them to pray, or rather, as it says in verse 18, not simply to pray, but to plead to God for mercy so that he and his friends aren't executed. When crisis hits, Daniel is clear that there is only one place to go. He'd already seen God's faithfulness during their early years in Babylon, and he also knew God's promises in scripture, such as Psalm 50, verse 15, which says, call on me on the day of trouble, I will deliver you and you will honor me. Daniel knew that God was the only one worth turning to for help. Was Daniel's trust worth it? Verse 19, during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. God did it. He helped Daniel in exactly the way that was needed. He revealed the dream, showing that he could do exactly what the Babylonian wise men and Babylonian gods were helpless to do. Daniel's first response isn't to leg it to the king to get their freedom, but to praise the God who did what no one else could. In verses 20 to 23, we have this beautiful prayer that reads like a psalm or song to God. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and life dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. What an amazing prayer. God's power is seen so wonderfully here. Having seen the ugly but also limited power of Nebuchadnezzar at the beginning, we see here a God who doesn't simply have wisdom and power, but all wisdom and all power belong to him. They are his. There is no wisdom and no power out there that isn't his. This God doesn't react to times and seasons like we do. He changes them. He doesn't suffer or prosper under kings, depending on what they're like. He gets rid of them and raises them up. And crucially for Daniel, he's the God who gives wisdom to the wise. That is, wisdom to those like Daniel who are looking for it. And he reveals what's deep and hidden. The mysteries underlying the here and now world that we see and the behind-the-scenes spiritual world that we can't. This makes all the difference for what happens next. Daniel can confidently say to Arioch, do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret the dream for him. Arioch takes Daniel to the king at once. I found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means, maybe hoping the king will give him some, will give him some credit. 
Daniel, though, isn't looking for any credit for himself. He says in verse 27, no wise man, enchanter, magician or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he's asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. It's quite a challenge to us that Daniel is so quick to give God all the honour and glory and to point Nebuchadnezzar to God rather than himself. Daniel also exposes how limited human, is, human insight and wisdom is even among those who should be the wisest. It's also worth seeing God's kindness at this point. We know that Nebuchadnezzar isn't a very friendly chap. He isn't a humble, God-fearing king. And yet we see in 28 to 30 that God has deliberately revealed truth about the future to Nebuchadnezzar. The God who has the power to reveal, who comes to the help of his people, doesn't just communicate to Israel, but he wants pagan nations to know the truth about him too. For anyone here who's into languages, which I'm not really, but anyone who is, it's worth seeing that as well as being a book of two cities and two worlds, Daniel is a book of two languages. Chapters two to seven are written in Aramaic, which was the global language of the time whereas the rest of the book is in Hebrew, the language of God's people. So our chapter is the first one in Aramaic. And it's amazing to see God's kindness in reaching out to a pagan superpower king, and by association, the pagan nations Nebuchadnezzar ruled over. God wants his revelation to be made known to the world, not just to his people at that time. And he chose to use a crisis situation to make that happen. Daniel's faithfulness in the crisis allowed the revelation to be made known. A crisis is a really good opportunity to measure what our view of God really is. Whether it's a crisis on a big scale like terrorism, war or the B word Brexit, or crisis on a smaller scale, relationship breakdown, financial difficulty or an unexpected diagnosis. Where we turn first is where we think wisdom and power really lie. Some of us are likely to be problem solvers and when crisis hits our knee-jerk reaction is to turn inwards to our own resources to try to fix things for ourselves or others. We don't think we need to waste God's time or other people's So we try to get as much of our own wisdom and power as we can. Or we might turn first to a spouse, boyfriend, friend or family member, hoping that they'll provide the wisdom and power that we need. Our mental resources, family and friends are all huge gifts from God and can help us in crisis. But if they're our default refuge, then we're forgetting who all wisdom and all power belong to. And we're relying on people who are completely limited in both. Daniel turns to his friends in a crisis, but in order for them all to turn to God together, he knew that the Lord is the only one who always knows what's best and the only one with power over everything. Let's remember that and help each other to remember that when the crises hit.
Having seen the God who reveals, the next section of our story shows us the God who rules. So the God who rules, verses 31 to 45. You'll remember that Nebuchadnezzar didn't simply want to have the dream interpreted, but he wanted to be told what his dream was. God's revelation meant that Daniel is able to do just that. In verses 31 to 35, he tells Nebuchadnezzar exactly what he had dreamt. He'd seen an enormous statue with a head of pure gold. You have to use your imaginations here. A head of pure gold, uh, chest and arms of silver, belly and thigh of bronze, legs of iron, and feet partly of iron, partly of baked clay. And um, the statue didn't stay fixed, though. A rock is cut out of it, but not by a human. This rock strikes the statue's feet, and the whole huge thing breaks apart, becoming like chaff, uh, bits of useless straw. It's blown away, leaving nothing behind. That's not it, though. The rock that struck the statue becomes a huge mountain and fills the whole earth. So a complete reversal. What looked huge and impressive at first was destroyed and completely overtaken by a rock that becomes a mountain. Knowing that much isn't enough to help Nebuchadnezzar though, and it definitely is not enough to help us. We need to know what the dream means and this is where Daniel steps in to give the God-given interpretation in verses 37 to 45. Listen to how Nebuchadnezzar is described. It might sound familiar. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he's placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler of them all. You are that head of gold. Doesn't that description of Nebuchadnezzar sound strangely like God himself? But it's clear that God is the one who's given Nebuchadnezzar all that power. As we saw earlier in Daniel's song, power belongs to him. God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to become one of the greatest leaders in the ancient world. At the British Museum today, you can go and see exhibitions about him and his power. His kingdom would have been really impressive. Nebuchadnezzar isn't the end of the story, though. After Babylon, another kingdom would appear, the silver one, that wasn't as great as Nebuchadnezzar's. Then there'd be another kingdom, the bronze one, which would have a huge rule over the earth. But the fourth kingdom, the legs of iron, would be even stronger and it would crush and break all the others. This kingdom's power doesn't last though, as it only has feet of mixed materials. The people don't stay united. Through the dream and interpretation, God has revealed what would be coming up in world history. So it shouldn't surprise us that we see Nebuchadnezzar's dream played out in the following centuries. After the impressive Babylonian Empire came the less impressive Medo-Persian Empire. Then you have the vast power of the Greek Empire under leaders such as Alexander the Great, portrayed as bronze in the statue. 
Then finally, I wonder if you can guess what the Iron Kingdom was that smashed everything. It seems like it was the Roman Empire, which incredibly lasted over 500 years and took over a huge chunk of the known Western world, but eventually divided. It's a nice history lesson for everyone. Um, you'll notice that it was during that empire that the rock gets cut out. God sets up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, a kingdom that would crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but will itself last forever. Daniel is clear in verse 45 that this dream is true and that its interpretation is trustworthy. Over 500 years after this dream, when Israel was under the Romans, Jesus went into Galilee and said, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. The arrival of Jesus meant the arrival of a kingdom totally different from all other kingdoms, a kingdom set up by God, not people. We might be confused at this point though, if Jesus' kingdom was meant to crush all the others, then why are there still so many dodgy kingdoms around today? Why does it not look as though Jesus' kingdom is here? You might remember from reading the Gospels that Jesus' followers were also sometimes confused as to why Jesus wasn't bringing an end to Roman rule then and there. But Jesus was clear that his kingdom was like a tiny mustard seed that would start tiny, tiny, and would one day fill the whole earth. He was clear that his gospel would go out to all the nations before the end would come. Right now, as the message of Jesus' death and resurrection is going out across the world, God's kingdom is growing as people are turning to him. Christianity has gone from being a few followers in the Middle East to a global religion. But Jesus' rule still isn't seen on the earth yet, which is why we still pray your kingdom come in the Lord's Prayer. We're still waiting for Jesus' return. We're still waiting for his kingdom to fill the whole earth, like the mountain that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about. Let's get back to our story though. Let's see what happens as a result of Daniel's dream interpretation. From verses 46 to 49, we see that it had a huge impact. Nebuchadnezzar, the king who'd been threatening to kill Daniel, is now lying at his feet, giving him offerings and incense as you would to a god. Nebuchadnezzar makes a massive claim about Daniel's god too. Surely your god is the god of gods and lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. The king who was the head of gold in the statue is seeing that all rulers are under the God of Israel. Nebuchadnezzar then gives Daniel and his friends huge power in Babylon. We can see this as God's kindness, putting his own people in positions of responsibility in a pagan superpower. It also shows God's authority. All human kingdoms are under his power and influence. There is no kingdom that's too great for him to work in. So we've seen the God who reveals. 
that his wisdom is better than the, the, than the best the world can offer. And we've seen the God who rules, whose kingdom is more powerful than the most powerful of all the kingdoms of the world. Years later, our God is still the same God, the God who reveals and the God who rules. For us today, we thankfully haven't experienced invasion and deportation by an enemy state. But one Peter is clear that as Christians, we too are living in exile. That our real home isn't the geographical location that we live. For many of our brothers and sisters across the world, this is really good news. They live in countries where it looks as though lots of Nebuchadnezzars are in power. According to the charity Open Doors, over 200 million Christians live in countries where high-level persecution is the norm. How important for them to hear that Pakistan, Nigeria, Sudan and North Korea aren't their real home. That their God is the one who really rules and that his kingdom will win over all others. In our own country, persecution is a strong word to use, but I think we'd fall off our chairs if we heard that the cabinet or the boss at work had been inquiring of Christians to get God's insight, like Nebuchadnezzar did. We're pretty used to the Christian voice being sidelined and ridiculed at the public level. When it comes to issues of sexuality, gender and medical ethics, Christians wanting to hold what the Bible says are seen not only as ridiculous, but cruel and dangerous. It looks as though a liberal agenda that puts self-expression first is in charge. Ironically though, only certain things are okay to express. Radio One does a very highbrow slot called Unpopular Opinions, uh, where people say things like, Beyonce is overrated, and listeners respond with shock and horror. <laughs> So knowing people can respond aggressively to a comment on Beyonce means that the Bible's opinion on things is going to be more than unpopular. And it's worth expecting that if we don't already. How do you respond to God's will being ignored or ridiculed in public policy, education and the media? What about at work or among parents at the school playground? Sometimes we might just want to cry, which could be the right reaction. Israel wept in exile, and we're living in a society where it's hard to be a Christian, and where people are suffering big time as a result of God's word being ignored. But no matter how much our society turns away from God and his word, it's worth remembering that our God is still the God who rules and that all wisdom and all power are his. He knows what he's doing when we don't have a clue. As exiles, we're not ultimately looking forward to a kingdom set up by Labour or the Conservatives or the EU. We're looking forward to a kingdom that will beat all of those and will be ruled by the only king who is perfectly wise and perfectly powerful. God gives us no guarantees that the society around us will change for the better. 
Babylon certainly didn't massively change its ways. But as we saw in chapter one, God has the power and wisdom needed that enable Daniel and can enable us to live for him in the world as it is. By giving Daniel the power he did at the end of chapter two, God is showing that he can use his people for good in the, in the power structures of this world. However hostile or indifferent to Jesus it may seem, you aren't where you are by mistake or chance. God has strategically placed you wherever you are to live for him and he's able to help you. Often though, despair isn't our reaction to living in exile. Instead, probably our bigger danger is to forget we're in exile at all. At CCE, we're blessed to have a range of nationalities with South Africans probably winning if there were a competition. And hopefully the longer you've been here, the more you've felt at home. But your accents, your brys, your delicious mint crisp, no peppermint crisp tart pudding, um, they're all indicators that you are from somewhere else. As Christians though, we generally look, sound and dress like those around us. So because we don't stand out in those natural ways, our reaction to being exiles might just be to blend in with those around us because that feels easier than not fitting in. London life encourages us to focus on this world and to see the here and now as home. We're encouraged to focus the best of our energies on making things here as good and comfortable as they can be, with personal happiness being our final authority. We're not encouraged to think about God at all, let alone see him as the authority in our lives. We're not encouraged to think about the behind the scenes spiritual world. We can't see it and we're not encouraged to think about it. We're not encouraged to look forward to our ultimate home in God's kingdom. The cheesy line goes, home is where the heart is. And if our hearts are in love with this world and its focus on the here and now, if we blend in perfectly with those around us, then we're in danger of being part of the kingdom that God will crush. Just as Daniel would have been killed with the other wise men had he just blended in. If we want to live under God's authority and for his kingdom, but we struggle, if we feel the constant pull to give our best to our here and now home, but we also want to serve God and his people, then we need to remember what's coming. As God's people, we have citizenship and a home in the kingdom that is going to smash all others and will last forever. As you make plans for the future, which home is the one that dominates your planning the most? As you make decisions of how to use your time, resources, relationships, work um, and energy, which home is the one that drives your decisions? 
Which home is the one that dominates your prayer life? Is it the one you'll be in for a few years in this life or the one you'll be in for eternity? How can we invite our friends, neighbours and colleagues to the citizenship they need for Jesus' kingdom? It's a much better deal than what they get for British citizenship, as I've heard from Paula. Um, decisions that you make now to live for your eternal home in God's kingdom, they might feel costly, but they're decisions that you'll never ultimately regret. Because unlike Google, God's authority is 100% reliable on everything all the time. As citizens of Jesus' kingdom, we're looking forward to a kingdom that will fill the earth, that will be better than the best home we can imagine. Its king will rule with all wisdom, with all power and with all love. That is the best and only place worth giving ourselves to. All other kingdoms and powers will not last. They are all temporary. So let's ask for God's help and each other's to live for his kingdom and to look forward to our home with him in it. I'll pray to close. Father God, thank you so much um, that here is not our home. Uh, Lord, we um, yeah, may be especially glad of that today as it's horrible weather, um, but we thank you that um, our real home is with you in um, heaven for forever, where there'll be no more tears or mourning or crying or pain. We'll be able to see you face to face. We'll be able to see your power, your love and your goodness all the time. And Lord, we really pray that you would change our hearts so that we would be living for that home and that kingdom uh, rather than uh, putting all our hope in this one. Uh, we're sorry for how easily we can um, forget that we're in exile, that we can forget that here is not where we ultimately belong. And um, we pray for your help uh, to remember who we are and who you are as well. Thank you that you're the God of all wisdom, power and love and that you're able to help us live, to, live for you um, in this world as it is pray you'd help us to help each other do that. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.